Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, all right. All right. We're ready to go. That's awesome. Uh, I want to welcome you here in our worship center over in the Ridge, and uh, I really am excited about so many things. This, this course tonight we're doing, movement course, uh, we're excited about that. I know a lot of you from uh, RPYA, our young adults are joining us tonight, and uh, <laughs> so it's going to be a wild uh, movement course, I'm telling you, I'm very excited about that. Uh, also, hey, with that, that kids ministry thing, I just want to make clear, the one thing we do here at Rocky Peak that's really cool is when you sign up for kids ministry, uh, most people serve on a kind of a, a half-time basis. And so that's one of the reasons it takes so many volunteers, because we want you to be able to, to serve, but also be in services on a regular basis. And so I want to make you uh, aware of that. And also, uh, most of you didn't know, but I was gone on a long motorcycle adventure uh, last weekend. And uh, I never like to tell you because disaster often happens. Uh, but I just want to like, good, good news that I came back went to Montana, I went to Washington, every place in between, and uh, had no crashes, no disasters, no new revelations. We're not doing rooted number two, anything like that. Uh, and so I am relieved. So uh, anyway, uh, we're going to be jumping into our time of, of teaching. I can't remember if I've introduced myself. My name is Michael, uh, one of the pastors. So whether you're here or over in the ridge, I want to welcome you today. And inside the program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. And so I encourage you to take that out. That'll help you follow along. And if you're ready to go, then I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here under your leadership. And we just... We just uh, Profess, Lord, that you are king, you are Lord, that this church belongs to you. We are your field, we're your building, and we come under that leadership now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come as you promised to be our teacher, our guide, our mentor. We pray that you would open up your word to us, you would turn on the lights, we could see what you're saying in a, in a fresh way and apply it to our lives. So we take off some, some more filters and we get a, a, a fresh view of your vision for our lives, what it means to be a follower. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today in a dimly lit room. And the place is packed. And she's nervous. To be honest, this is one of the scariest things that she's ever done in her life. And that's saying a lot if you knew her life. But that night, she just felt compelled. And so she put on her shawl. She walked through the familiar streets of the city until she arrived at this destination. And when she got there, dinner was being served, and all the VIPs were around the table. The place was packed, though dimly lit, around the perimeter of the room where were spectators, people not invited to dinner, but were coming just to see what was going to happen. There was definitely both tension and anticipation in the air. And as she moved in and forced her way through the crowds, moved her way around to the, the part of the room where she felt like she needed to be, she was trying to be as obscure as possible. She didn't want to stand out. But as she stood there back against the wall and she looked out over the room, it seemed almost surreal for her to be in a room with so many important people, VIPs. And as she stood there with the crowd, her mind began to drift back over the last few days and weeks. The events that had happened, the messages she'd heard, the transformed lives she'd seen. And as she looked out, she began to be overwhelmed with emotion. It was emotion that 
reflected her past, but it was also a new gratitude, a hope that was arising in her heart for the very first time in a long, long time. Then as she began to reflect, she tried to fight back the tears that began to come. But the harder she tried, the more it was like they had a mind of their own. And pretty soon, the tears were trickling down her, her face. And though she tried as hard as she could to hold back this flood of emotion, it just continued to build until she began as quietly as possible to hold back the sobs and the tears that were streaming down. And though she was trying to be obscure and just blend in, it was at that moment that it happened. Well, today, we're continuing a series that we've been in now for the last couple of months called Unfiltered, the Audience of One. And for those who are brand new, this is a series about Jesus. And what we've discovered in this series is that often when we talk about Jesus, that we bring with us certain preconceived notions, ideas. I like to call them filters. Like you think of a camera, like, like filters on a, on a shot that, uh, that have built up over our lives, sometimes through Sunday school class, through, um, through church, maybe through um, uh, secular education, college courses, maybe it's through PBS or Discovery Channel um, documentaries, maybe it's through popular media, you know, um, Da Vinci Code or whatever it is. Um, but our goal in this series is to go back in time to the first century, to one of the earliest biographies that describes the life and teaching of Jesus to see if we can capture some new shots, some new images, kind of remove some of these old images, these filters, capture some new unfiltered images of who Jesus is, what he actually said, so we better understand what it looks like to follow him today. And so right now, we're in the midst of uh, the most uh, famous teaching of Jesus' life. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And today, we actually break into a new section of the sermon. It's chapter 7, where Matthew begins to, as he's beginning to wrap up his summary of that day, he's going to come on three or four kind of miscellaneous teachings he wants to include before he begins to wrap it up with Jesus' final comments. And the message, uh, uh, the, the passage we're going to read today actually has a couple of proverbs in it that are like uh, become proverbial in our culture, whether you're growing up in a Christian home or ever been to church or ever read your Bible or not. But they're two of the most, uh, I think, uh, kind of the not only famous, but also mis- often misunderstood teachings of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have your apps, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 7. And there in your note sheet is a section called Jesus, the audience of one, Jesus and judgment. And we're going to pick it up at chapter 7 in verse 1. And so it starts like this. It says, do not judge or you too will be what? Yeah, you judge. And so the way it often comes in our culture is judge not lest you be judged. Good. Okay. Well, yeah, judge not lest you be judged. I want to make sure you're part of our culture. Uh, some of you are like, I've never heard that before. But chances are, even if you've never been to church, 
if you've never read the Bible, that you are familiar with this quote of Jesus. Judge not, lest you be judged. In fact, you may even have quoted it just to get people off your back if anyone was ever on your back. And so it's a very common teaching. But the question is, what does Jesus mean as he talks to us as followers of Jesus? Say, in your life, I don't want you to judge uh, lest you be judged. What does it mean? And so I want to do a quick sidebar here on the word judge in Greek because it's important for us today. And so we're just going to start with this and then we'll come back to it later, but lay a foundation. And so let's do a little Greek study, all right? So the word for judge in this passage is the word krino. So if you want to write it down in English, it's K-R-I-N-O. And the word krino has what we call in language studies a wide semantic range, now you say, what is a semantic range? Well, words have a range of meanings. So for example, if you look up in the dictionary, uh, any, any word, most words will have several different definitions, right? And they'll even be numbered, like one, two, three, and four. And what the dictionary is telling you is this is kind of the range of what this word can mean in different contexts. And the numbers indicate the frequency. In other words, it usually means number one, but sometimes it can be number two, and, and so it's like it ranges from high frequency to low frequency. So for example, words only mean something in context, right? And in different contexts, words can change meaning. So for example, let me, let me give an example. Think of the word shot. If I were to ask you, okay, uh, what does the word shot mean? Well, it's gonna mean different things in different contexts. Like if you're at a shooting range and I say, take the next shot, it involves ammunition, right? If you're at a basketball game and I say, I hope he takes the shot, that means something different. If I'm at a hockey game, like he took a shot on goal, means something completely different. If you're at a hospital, it's not an athletic event when the nurse comes to give you a shot. And if you go to a bar, what you're gonna get is something completely different that might help you with the pain of the hospital, right? So, in, so when you walk into a bar and you ask for a shot, you're going to get a very small amount of uh, alcohol with a very big impact for a very high price, right? So it's going to, it's going to, and if someone from Ohio says, I'm going to LA, I have to go after my dream, I have to give it a shot in the industry, it means completely different. And so this is just how words work. And in the Bible, like any other literature, words only have meaning in context, and they have a semantic range of what they can mean in different contexts. So the word judge has a fairly wide semantic range. It's important we understand that today. So let me give you some of the meanings. So like one meaning of the word to judge, the Greek word krino, can mean to evaluate. Right, so you evaluate something. Is it good, is it bad? Is it right, is it wrong? Is it true, is it false? Is it better to, you're making a judgment about something. Um, it can also mean to make a decision. You decide to do something, this over that. Um, it can also refer to a courtroom where you have like a judge who's giving a judgment uh, in a court case, or in that vein, it can even move to meaning condemn, like uh, you are judged, right? So the word judge, krino in Greek, has a fairly wide semantic range. It can move from evaluating ideas to condemning, depending on the context. 
And so as an interpretation of all scripture, as we interpret what does Jesus mean by judge, we're gonna say, well, how does Jesus use that word? What does he teach in context of this chapter? What does he teach in the context of all his teaching? And we're gonna take that all into consideration to understand what he is saying when he says, do not judge. And we'll come back to that later. So he says, um, do not judge or you will be judged. He says, and the reason why this is so important because in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So we call this the principle of reciprocity. And we see it often in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus often says, God will respond to you in the way you respond to others. So for example, uh, think of a famous example in Luke chapter six where Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Like we only have 13 people here today. I can't remember what. I, give and it shall be given. given. Right, it takes the village. Um, all right, so, um, uh, or think of the Lord's prayer uh, where it's, we're to pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And Jesus goes on to say, if you don't forgive others their sin, your father won't forgive you. It's principle of reciprocity. So here we have a similar one where Jesus says, hey, be careful how you judge, whatever he means by that. Be careful how you judge others because whatever ruler you use will be used to judge you. And then he says, so why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, in the original context, this would be a great place to take off some filters. In the original context, this would have been hilarious. Because the word for speck, uh, he says a speck, it could refer to anything small. Like uh, a speck could be straw, could be dust, could be a piece of wood. That's the small. The big, where he says the, uh, the plank, that, that means like a really big beam, like a major beam in a house or like a rafter. So he says, why are you paying attention to the speck in your brother's eye when you have a two by four coming out of your eye? And so then he goes on and as he paints the picture, it becomes funny because he says, how can you say to your brother, picture this, got the two by four, hey, let me help you, you know, bang, 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 uh, get the, oh, I can't even get close to you. he says, uh, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you, when you have this plank in your own eye? Uh, and so he said, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and uh, deal with your own issues first. And then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Then he says, he goes, another, uh, another proverb that's become famous in our culture, do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. Now, the way we say that, it's become proverbial, is don't cast your pearls before. Oh, good, 26. All right. So, uh, we're getting there. But this service is going to be awesome. Uh, we're all going to be awake and participating. Um, yeah, so, so uh, he says, then the reason you don't want to do that, because if you do, they may trample them with their feet. You throw these pearls before pigs. They, you know, they're looking for food, not pearls. They don't see the value. So they're going to trample them, can destroy what's valuable, uh, and then turn on you because they're mad because you didn't bring the food and tear you to pieces. Now, this last parable or this last little proverb, we're not really sure exactly what Jesus was referring to. It's so short and pithy. There's not a lot of context to figure out exactly what he was getting at. But here's what we think like we, he may be talking about is that Jesus, you know, uh, later on in his ministry, he told 
uh, his disciples, he sent them out two by two to share the message of the kingdom. He said, when you go into a town, if people are open and receptive, then stay there and teach them about the kingdom. But they're not open and receptive. Just shake the dust off your feet as a sign of judgment, like a prophetic sign, and then, uh, and then move on to the next town to where people are. So in other words, he, he'll later tell his disciples, hey, when you're sharing the message of the kingdom, be discerning who you share it with and how you share it. And it very well be likely that what Jesus is saying here is that as you share the message of the kingdom, use some discernment because there are certain situations, if you try to share this, people won't recognize the value of it and they'll actually turn on you. And so the message will be lost and it'll become a counterproductive situation. So kind of use your discernment. That's one of our best thoughts at what it, it, it might be referring to. All right, so that's a passage. It's a passage about judging, a passage about discernment. But the question is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and to live out a kingdom life in this area of judging? What does Jesus mean when he says don't judge uh, because you'll be judged in the same standard um, and kind of take, this, take the beam out of your own eye first? And so we want to tackle that today because it's an important part of following Jesus and it has tremendous implications for our impact on the world and spreading the message of Jesus. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Jesus and Judgment. Judgment, what's he saying? What I want to do is, is kind of start with uh, kind of two basic statements about what Jesus means, what he doesn't mean, and then come back and ask two questions at the end to help us apply this to our life. But uh, what I want to do is come at this by you know, with two statements. First, I want to start with the negative first. Let's tear down some old filters, tear off some filters. What did Jesus not mean when he said, hey, don't judge? Let's, let's tear down some misconceptions, often very uh, common in our culture, of what he was talking about. And then we'll come back with the positive and rebuild after we've uh, kind of cleared the way. So um, there in your note sheet, the first section says what Jesus is not saying. So what's he not saying when he says, judge not. And so here's, let's fill in the blank. What he's, what he's not saying is we should not make judgments. Jesus is not saying, as you go through your life, don't make judgments, don't evaluate. Um, you know, we live in a culture today where one of the highest values in our culture is tolerance. And what that means is if you ever say something is right, versus something is wrong, something is good versus something is bad, something is true versus something is false. If you ever make a statement like that in the public square, chances are you're going to get attacked as narrow-minded, self-righteous, perhaps even bigoted. And so the thought is, anytime we make a statement of what's right or wrong, it's like, oh, judge not. Don't, hey, don't put your judgment on me, right? That's often in our culture. But we'll see today it's clearly not what Jesus meant, that as followers of Jesus, we're often commanded to be discerning, to evaluate truth, to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, true and false. Let me give you a couple examples right here from this same chapter. Remember we talked about semantic range and we said that words only mean things in context. And so what is the context? How did Jesus use this word? What did Jesus teach us about evaluation? And what we'll see is right here in this very same chapter, in chapter seven, Jesus talks to us about the need to be discerning. Uh, the need to distinguish right and wrong. We just had a great example in chapter seven and verse six where he said, do not cast your pearls before pigs. 
Um, well, if we're right in understanding, if Jesus is saying, hey, don't share the message of the kingdom with everyone, what, what he's saying is that you have to discern first what are your pearls and what are not pearls, and then you have to discern who are pigs and who are not pigs, right? You have to discern uh, people and situation. You have to evaluate. You have to make judgments. Uh, even clearer example, look down at verse 715. We will get there in a couple weeks, but uh, we'll just have a little preview right now. Jesus warns us as his followers, he says, watch out for what? Can we say that together? Watch out for? Good. So in other words, he says, there's going to be people that come to you who claim to be speaking for me. They're going to claim to love Jesus, be speaking for Jesus, and to be looking out for your best interest, to love you. He said, but they're not going to be. They're going to be people that are not coming from me. They're not speaking for me, and they're not looking out for your best interest. In fact, they want to use you. Like, have you ever heard of any religious people using people for their own advantages? Of course, right? And so he says they're going to be, they want to use you. So he goes on and he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing. Otherwise, they look safe, but inwardly they're what? Wolves. They, they have bad motives. And he says, and by their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, Jesus says, they're going to come, and they're going to talk a good game, and they're going to look on the surface, but you need to look deeper into their life, because it's easier to fake words than it is life. So you need to evaluate their life. Are they living the message? Are they following me? Do they, they have humility? Do they have uh, honor? Do they have love? Do they have compassion? Do they have service? Like, they have integrity. Are they living the life? And he said, so as my followers, you need to be very discerning because people, not everyone who comes and claims to be speaking for me is speaking for me. And not everyone who comes and claims to be looking out for you is looking out for you. You have to be very discerning. So can you see that it's obvious that Jesus is not saying a few verses earlier, judge not mean you should never be discerning. We have to be discerning as believers. We have to discern good from evil, right from wrong, truth from error. In fact, Jesus will even go further later on in this gospel and say as followers of Jesus, we need to not only be discerning, we need to hold one another accountable for following Jesus in our life. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when I was new here at Rocky Peak, um, so that was uh, over 13 years ago, when I came in that very first year, that I remember one day our worship pastor, who's a great guy, worship pastor came in. He said, hey, we got a, a, a problem. We got a situation on, a, on our worship team, one of our worship teams. And he said, we, this one girl, I knew her, and she's one lady on the worship team that we discovered. She's a single lady. She's, she's living with her boyfriend, so she's sexually active. And so we just want to make sure we're on the same page, you know, with you as, in terms of how we respond to that. And so we all agreed, yeah, that's not okay. We need to move towards that. And so it's interesting as they met with her and they did a great job, showed a lot of love and compassion and he met with her with a, a female person of our staff just to make sure it's all in the up and up and, and they just approached her, hey, we, this is what we've heard. And, and her response was, what I do on my own free time is none of your business. Now that would be very common opinion in the world today. In fact, this is often very common among Christ followers. I've seen this many times where someone is, is living in what the Old Testament call high-handed sin, clear rebellion against God, and when someone goes to 
talk with them and confront them about that, they will say, judge not lest you be judged. So is that what Jesus meant? That as believers, we should not have opinions we should not hold accountable. Well, clearly not. Because in Matthew 18, look what Jesus says. In Matthew 18, he says, if a brother or sister sins, so notice that, it's if who sins? Brother Brother or sister. Not your coworker at work who doesn't know Jesus. (laughs) They were not irresponsible to hold non-believers to Christian standards. That's God's job. But if it's a brother, and it's interesting, the Christian community, we often try to hold the world accountable while sweeping sin in our midst under the carpet, you know? So we do the opposite. So it's a brother or sister. So they're a self-proclaimed Jesus follower. He said, we're to go and point out the fault just between the two of you. Just handle the lowest, don't gossip to 18 people. Just go and talk with them about it. And if they listen, you've won them over, and that's great, and then we can just move on. But if they... uh, he says, but if they refuse to listen, then elevate it, take one or two others. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Unless you can't be part of the community. So the basic, the basic uh, teaching of scripture, we see it several places, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 2 Thessalonians, is someone claims to be a follower of Jesus and are living in clear, high-handed sin. Right? You think of the sinless of the New Testament. And they're refusing to turn from it you have a very simple choice to make. You can either hold on to the fellowship and let go of your sin, or you can let go of your sin and hold on to the fellowship. You can't hold on to your sin and hold on to the fellowship. That'll destroy the movement of Jesus and it'll destroy you spiritually, right? And so clearly, Jesus, when he says, judge not, he's not saying we shouldn't call right, right, wrong, wrong, sin, sin. And he's not saying we shouldn't hold each other accountable. The rest of his teaching makes that clear. So if he's not saying that we should not evaluate, make decisions, hold accountable, the question is, what does he mean? And that leads us to the next fillet. So what Jesus is saying, I think a good way to put this in our colloquial language today is Jesus saying we should not be judgmental. The followers of Jesus should not have a judgmental attitude. Now, what's a judgmental attitude? Well, in my mind, when I use that word, I I think of self-righteous. I think of Pharisees. I think I'm so glad I'm not like you. Uh, Like, I'm better than you. I can't believe what you're doing. Uh, I'm writing you off. Um, You're over there. I'm over here. I think of the, the parable that Jesus said about the Pharisee who prayed at the Jerusalem. God, I thank, I thank you I'm not like other men. I don't do this. I don't do that. Thank you that I'm amazing. Right? So it's this, this attitude of, of kind of self-righteousness where when you think of our semantic range, it's not about evaluating. It's about operating as judge and jury and condemning. It's about I can't believe you're doing what you're doing. I would never do that. And so therefore, I'm writing you off. You're a condemned person. Are you following me on this? Um, so let me give you an example. You know, we started the day with this story of this woman taking this huge risk, going to this packed room. And it's one of the favorite stories from the life of Jesus. It's, it's recorded in Luke chapter 7. And what, uh, what Luke tells us is that uh, on this particular day, this woman 
uh, and he describes her as a woman who had lived a sinful life, which is probably a nice way of saying she was a prostitute. He doesn't say that, but knowing Jesus would hang out with uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, probably a prostitute. And so um, she's, she's a prostitute. Imagine that. So imagine all the choices she's made. We don't know what brought her to this decision to sell her body to survive, but she, that, that's her life and that's her story and this is how she makes her living. And so in that culture, uh, the way a Pharisee would look at a person like that is you are a sinner and I am not. I obey the law. And so I am a righteous man, and the way I stay righteous is by staying away from people like you. Right? So that's something that. So she's grown up in a culture like that, where she is a spiritual reject. There's no hope for her, and it would appear as the story goes on, as you read between the lines, it would appear that she had heard the teaching of Jesus. Then the last few days, weeks, we don't know what it was, but she has heard the teaching of Jesus. Now, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. So as he go from place to place, he's gonna be telling the same stories, the same message. And so maybe she'd heard the story of the prodigal son. Maybe she'd seen the way he responded and had meals with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. But whatever it was, it, it appears that she had been deeply impacted by the teaching of Jesus and the love of Jesus because Jesus will later on refer to her as a forgiven person before he even talks to her. And so she has come prepared for this. She's been deeply moved by Jesus and she feels compelled to come and to observe this dinner and to get close to him. And frankly, I don't think she had any idea what she was going to do. Have you ever been in that situation? Like you don't know what's gonna happen or what you're gonna do, but you just know you need to do something. And I, I think this is her. She doesn't, what's go, about to unfold before our eyes, she didn't know that was gonna happen. And the reason is she's gonna start bawling her eyes out and washing his feet. That's not like you planned that. Okay, I'm gonna go and stand behind him and then I'll start bawling. And then I'll start, like that's something you plan. But she brings this perfume that's really part of her trade. And she brings it, her heart has definitely been moved. She apparently has received new hope that maybe there's hope for me if God is really like this Jesus says. And so she comes in this crowded room and she's standing there observing it. at a certain point, this combination of where she's come from and the hope that has come has just touched her heart and she begins to cry and then begins to weep and sob. Because we know that there's a lot of tears and so at that moment, a plan comes together and she falls to her knees and she begins to let her tears fall on Jesus' feet. Now this is where we need to take off a filter because if you're familiar with the story, we go, yeah, yeah, then he turned around, blah, blah. Can you imagine how strange this is? Picture this scene. We're not sitting at a table like today. They're eating Roman style. So they're, they're facing in towards 18-inch uh, high tables. They're leaning on their left elbow with their feet going back away, eating, you know, picture the Roman with grapes. Okay? So they're all eating. So she's behind Jesus. She's made her way behind him. She begins to sob. She kneels down. She falls down. She begins to cry on his feet. And this is the weirdest thing. Because uh, picture yourself there. 
if someone's, you're at a table, you got your flip-flops kicked off, and someone starts crying on your feet. You don't just turn around and go, oh, you're crying on my feet. Okay, can I have some more mashed potatoes, right? You're just gonna go like, what? You're gonna pull your feet away. You're gonna go, what are you doing? But Jesus doesn't do that, because he senses what's happening. And he lets this woman that everyone would see as far from God, a spiritual reject, lets her cry on his feet and begin then to wipe his dirty feet with her hair. Now, as he's doing this, Simon, who is the Pharisee, who has invited Jesus to dinner, but is very skeptical about Jesus, he looks at Jesus, and this is how his mind is working. This man is not a prophet. I know a lot of people say he's a prophet. He is not from God. He's not a prophet because if he was a prophet, number one, he would know who she is and what, how she makes her living. And number two, he wouldn't let her touch him because his whole paradigm is if you want to be close to God, you need to stay far away from people who are far from God. And what we have in this scene is we have a picture of what we've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount. We have a picture of the difference between religious righteousness and real righteousness. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 5.20? He said, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you can't be part of the kingdom. And throughout this sermon, he's been illustrating for us the difference between real righteousness, being transformed, become like our Father, and religious righteousness is often shallow and superficial and man-made rules and traditions. We have a perfect image here of the difference between religious righteousness that stands apart, looks down the nose, I'm right, they're wrong, and you stay over there, I have judged you, you are judged and condemned. That is religious righteousness, and Jesus says to his followers, I don't want you to be like that. Judge not, condemn not, because by the same measure that you use will be measured to you. So religious righteousness is about what I've achieved and who I am that separates me from others and causes me to look down the nose and write them off as self-righteous. Real righteousness comes from a man or woman who's experienced the mercy of God in their life and therefore has a love for God, but catch this, also a love and a mercy for others because we realize the mercy that we've received. So religious righteousness leads to condemning others and distancing ourselves. Real righteousness leads to a life of mercy and inclusion that we are all in this together. And you and I are not that different. And we may have walked different paths and different roads, and my sin may be different than your sin, but we are made from the same stuff. And given a different set of circumstances, I might be in exactly the same place. 
We are all in this together. And so Jesus says, remember what he said at the start of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 7, the Beatitudes, there in your note sheet. He said, blessed are the merciful, not the self-righteous, not the self-made righteous. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. See the principle of reciprocity? Blessed are the merciful, they will receive mercy. So, this leads to a couple questions, and as we apply it to our lives, there in your notes, Jesus and judgment, two questions. And I want to ask two questions, and they're two kind of penetrating questions. And as always, my goal here is not to shame or make guilty or catch you or nail you. Um, the goal is we're followers of Jesus here, right? And we want to learn what does it look like to follow Jesus. And so usually there's distance between where Jesus is and where we stand. And so as we grow, what happens is the Holy Spirit shows us, here's who Jesus is and here's what it's like to imitate. And there's usually a distance. And so as we listen and follow, then we become transformed as we move towards him. And this whole area of judgment and how we respond to others and their failures is I think one of the most important things that defines us as followers of Jesus. But I think it's one of the areas we often fall the most short. We often have misunderstood. And you'll see that as we go through. So the first question I ask, I'm gonna ask you is, uh, I'm gonna ask it one way, and I'm gonna come back and ask the same question a second way. Let's start like this. The first question is the easier way. How judgmental are you? How judgmental are you? Now, so we've seen that we're to judge not. We're not to be these judgmental, critical, condemning people. And so the question is, how judgmental are you? And my guess is most of us at this point in the conversation are feeling pretty good about ourselves. Because my experience is very few people say, yes, I am judgmental. I've, I love Jesus, uh, and, but I, I'm, telling, I'm just judgmental person. It's just the way I am. Well, like, Jesus followers don't say, we know it's bad to be judgmental. So we're like, well, no, we're, you know, we're not that, you know. We're just uh, sharp. We uh, have a keen eye for detail, you know, whatever. But uh, we, we, uh, we're not judgmental. So here's what I mean. After the word judgmental, I want you to put a slash, and I want you to write another word I think will help you evaluate, and the word is critical. How critical are you? <laughs> you see? Yeah. <laughs> It's suddenly, it's suddenly like, oh, oh, now I'm getting it. Yeah, because here's the, the mark of a self-righteous person is a critical. A critical what? Anything. The way you do this, the way you do that, the way you raise your kids, how you do this, how you respond in life group, how you do that, how you approach. I mean, that the mark of a self-righteous person is they're critical because they see themselves as the standard and they're evaluating everyone else by their standard. And so they, they kind of feel like it's their job to point out or to recognize error in other people. And this is why Jesus is warning, be very careful when you do that because when you evaluate people with that standard, you're gonna be evaluated by it and chances are you have a two by four in your head that you haven't even recognized yet. 
And a great example of this is Simon, who invited Jesus, right? So when you, when you think of that scene, if you go back to that scene, I don't know if you're familiar with the account, but it, here's how it works out. Simon is looking at Jesus and saying, if this man were a prophet, he would, number one, recognize who she is and what she does for a living, and number two, would not let, him, let her touch him. And so Jesus knows what Simon's thinking. He says, let me ask you a question. In fact, can I tell you a story? He said, yeah, tell me a story. He said, so once upon a time, there were two men, and they both were broke, and they didn't have the money to pay their bills, and so they went to, uh, you know, a loan shark, and uh, they borrowed money from this guy. One guy needed like a month and a half worth of income, and the other guy needed a year's worth of income, but when time came to pay up, they, uh, neither one could afford it, and, but instead of throwing him into prison like was his prerogative in that day, this guy really wasn't a loan shark. He was a generous guy, and he forgave them both their debts. And so he says, so Simon, who do you think will love the money lender the most? He says, well, it's obvious. The guy that was forgiven the most, the, the, 12, the 12 months of salary. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. So let's apply it to this situation. When I came into your house today, you did not even honor me with the common courtesies of the day. You didn't greet me in the normal way with a Middle Eastern kiss. You didn't give me the oil from my head, the olive oil. He doesn't mention it, but he probably didn't even water for his feet either. So, but this woman, this woman, she came in and she's been crying for a long time and she's been washing my feet with her tears and putting perfume on them and washing with her and wiping with her hair. So what does that tell you about who's been forgiven the greatest debt? And here's the reality is the woman saw a beam in her own eye and she knew she had a beam. And so when she was forgiven, she had tremendous love for Jesus. And the problem was Simon, he didn't think he had a beam in his eye. He didn't think there was anything he needed to be forgiven for. And therefore, he felt no sense to do anything for Jesus. But the irony was, he's the one with the beam. He's the guy that is self-righteous and doesn't realize that his heart, he's made of the same stuff. He's the guy that that has this arrogance and this self-righteous attitude and this critical spirit this man that's full of greed and it's all into public approval and living not for the audience of one but for the approval of others. This abuse of power that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, he's the guy that's farthest from God, not her. And so Jesus is pointing out that hey, you gotta be, and so this is what Jesus is saying is that as followers of Jesus, we don't wanna be like Simon. We wanna be like the woman. And here's what I've, I've uh, discovered in my life, maybe you've discovered this in yours, is that the closer we get to Jesus, the more we realize how far we are from the righteousness of God. As we've been studying this Sermon on the Mount, what real righteousness is, like loving your enemies, the more you understand what real righteousness is, 
the more we realize how fallen we are and how far we have to grow. So the mark of a mature believer is the more we mature we become, the more humble we become. Because we realize how far we are from what we were created to be, and also, the more we realize how amazing God's love and grace is to love us as we are, and what that does is create tremendous compassion for others who are failing in their life because we realize that could be me too. I'm made of the same stuff. My life may have turned out differently, but I am capable of the same stuff. You know, the Apostle Paul gives us a tremendous insight into his life in Romans 7. Romans 7 is a very famous passage where he talks about his spiritual struggle with sin in his own life. It's a passage where he says, I I do the things I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, I do. And it's interesting because theologians will disagree whether Paul is describing his current experience as a believer in Jesus in Romans 7 or his pre-Jesus experience before he came to Christ. I tend to think it's the pre-Jesus, but a lot of people think it's post, but for this purpose, it doesn't really matter. Because what Paul is sharing with us is his personal journey to discover what it is to be human and how broken we are as a race apart from Jesus and the supernatural work of the Spirit in our life. And there in your note sheet, this is how he describes it. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. Think of that. Nothing good lives in me that in my sinful nature. Now, he goes on to describe what he means by that. In, in, in the in sinful nature, is the, <clears throat> the word in Greek is in my flesh, my natural human nature. He said, and here's what I mean. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I have the desire, but not the capacity. Can you relate to that? Uh, high aspirations, low performance. I says, there's something deeply broken in me. And he's really serious about this because when he ends chapter seven, he ends it by saying, this is a human condition. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm a goner. I'm addicted to myself. I can't get out of my own way. I have high aspirations, low performance. I've tried my hardest. I cannot change the basic core of my being, I am self-absorbed. I have a magnetic pull to the dark side. And apart from Jesus and the work of his spirit, I will never change. Now catch this, the more you realize that, the more mercy you have for others. And the more you realize our stories may be different, but we are the same. And as we realize that, What drops is this critical attitude of how could you ever do that? And we begin to extend mercy that has been extended to us. And so this goes to the heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower. We respond to failures in others in the way God has responded to failures in us. And you know, we have a long way to go in this, don't we? Let me give you an illustration that just highlights the, the problem, uh, the challenge. Um, we could use a lot of illustrations. This just highlights it. There's something about social media that allows us to feel like we can speak more honestly. And so social media is a great reflection of our hearts oftentimes 
Because for whatever reason, we'll say things in social media we would never say in person. And um, it's always interesting to me, in times of national crisis, which is pretty much every other day right now, (laughs) that um, to watch the responses on Facebook, right? So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're on Facebook, you probably know other followers of Jesus on Facebook, so it's, it's fairly easy to do this. But think of the crises in our nation right now. Uh, every time there's a, a crisis, there's a shooting. The issue of gun control. Um, issue of immigration. Issue of racial discrimination. Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, elections. Think back to the elections, presidential elections. Um, When these kinds of issues come up, they're hot button issues, aren't they? And if you go on to like Facebook at a time like that, you're going to see self-proclaimed Christians weighing in on this. And what we'll often see is a lot of hatred and bitterness and attack, and name-calling. And I want to be real clear here. It's not about which side of these issues you're on. They're complicated issues. People who love Jesus and love people and love the kingdom are not always going to agree on the best way to solve these problems. That's not the issue. The issue is how we respond to one another. But here's what's interesting as Christians, how many times we will attack, name-call, mock, slander, rage, hatred, and bitter to take a speck out of our neighbor's eye on the issue of immigration. And we will miss the beam of hatred that's in our own eye. Are you with me on this? Understanding? As followers of Jesus, we should be the least judgmental people around. Not that we don't have opinions or discernment or right or wrong or hold accountable in the body of Christ. We've already established that. But as followers of Jesus, if we think someone else is wrong, we should give grace to them because we have been wrong and received grace. Now, second question, which is a similar question. It's really kind of the flip side of the same question. But I find in my own life, sometimes it's helpful to ask questions in different ways. It helps me to see different truths. And so the second question, the flip side, would be how merciful are you? Would those who know you best, would they see you as a merciful person, a person who gives mercy? You say, to whom? To people who are wrong. To people who hurt you. To people who let you down to people that may even betray you. One of the marks of a Christ follower is that we give mercy to those who fail us because God has given mercy to us when we failed him. You see this all through the New Testament. Then the last year, the Lord has been using a passage in my own life because I honestly think he really wants me to grow in this. It's been a great growth process for me, this area of weakness, I mean, growing. 
is in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's there in your note sheet, and it's in a section where Paul's talking about relationships in the body of Christ, and he says, be kind and compassionate to one another. And then what are the next words? He says, be kind and compassionate, then what, what comes next? Okay, forgiving each other. Can we say it together? Forgiving each other. Okay, forgiving each other. Like where? Out in the world? In the work? No. Here. In your life group. In your family. In your church. In your ministry team. What Paul is saying is in the body of Christ, we are going to hurt one another. In the body of Christ, there will be people who disappoint you. In the body of Christ, there will be people who don't act like Christ. And he says that he's assuming this. He's assuming that in the body of Christ, he just throws it out there, forgiving each other. And then look what he says. Just as in Christ, God, what? forgave you. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in a way of love just as, circle that, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us who had failed him. And so he says, as followers of Jesus, we're going to live out this new life that you need to understand in the body of Christ, people are going to fail you. People are going to hurt you. People are going to not live out the standards that Jesus is going to happen. And when it happens, it's not that we should not call sin, sin, or right, wrong, or hold accountable, if that's, if that's wrong. But in the body of Christ, this is going to happen. And so the question is, in your life, when people let you down, whether it's in the body of Christ, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your workplace, are you a person that gives grace and offers mercy or a person that pronounces judgment and condemnation, I can't believe they did that. They call themselves a Christian, and so on. So, a couple practical applications here as we bring this together at Rocky Peak. The church of Rocky Peak is the church of Jesus Christ, amen? amen. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. We're God's co-workers, we're his assistants. It's not, there's a time when I won't be here, and the elders are like, this church is not our church, it's the church of Jesus Christ. So the question is, as the church of Jesus Christ at Rocky Peak, how do we live out the gospel? How do we live out this teaching of Jesus? to judge not, lest you be judged. And I want to suggest a couple really practical things. Number one, it means at Rocky Peak, we do not care where someone comes from, we care where they're going, But catch this, it works both ends of the spectrum. It means that if you're coming to Rocky Peak, we don't care if you're Simon the Pharisee or the tear-stained sinful woman. That if you're coming for Jesus, you are welcome here. We don't care where you're coming from. We don't care what you've done. We don't care what your story is. And frankly, for me, some of you will probably be able to relate to that. 
For me, it's easier to welcome the prostitute than the Pharisee. Now, for some of you, it may be different from your background, but from the way I'm wired, the prostitutes come on in. I don't care where you've been, what you've done. There is, there's life and there's renewal and there's forgiveness. Come on in and drink deeply of the water of King Jesus. The one I struggle more with is Simon the Pharisee, the legalist. I don't have a lot of tolerance. And yet, the Bible is really clear that that legalist is my weaker brother. And Paul is really clear that as a follower of Jesus, I need to accept him as Jesus has accepted me. So wherever people coming from at Rocky Peak, we want to have wide open arms. We don't care where you're coming from or what your sin is. Sin of legalism, the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of degeneracy, promiscuity. We don't care where you're coming from. We care where you're going. We want to be a church with open arms. But it also means in our own life as we live out the gospel here in our church that we would grow in the mercy we extend to other believers here at Rocky Peak that let us down. Because if you're here long enough, someone's gonna let you down. Someone in your life group is going to act in a hypocritical way. Someone's going to gossip. Someone's going to be a fake. Someone is going to betray. Someone's gonna hurt you. Someone's gonna be irresponsible. Someone's not gonna keep their commitment. And when that happens, we're so tempted. It's so much easier to give grace to the new believers because they don't know better. What's hard is to give grace to people who should know better. It's like, what is wrong with you? You're here every weekend. Have you not been listening for the last three years? And it's hard, isn't it? But the mark of a, a Jesus follower is we give grace and we give forgiveness and we offer mercy to those who fail because we have received mercy when we have failed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, these are hard things, and I'm so thankful that you don't lower the bar for us. I'm so thankful that you lay out what true righteousness is, right, true, and good, becoming transformed, being like you, loving our enemies, being willing to bear the sins of others, and to forgive as you've forgiven us, that we're being transformed to be like you. And I I pray, Lord, that you'd give us grace as we try to live this out, that by the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed small step by small step, to learn to lay down our pride and our arrogance and our sense of offense and that we would give grace and mercy rather than judgment and condemnation. And that would become part of the mark of our lives and our church, a place that loves others as you've loved us. And so as we, we bring you our gifts, our offering, our tithes, as we continue to worship and reflect on your mercy for us and the mercy you call us to, we pray that you'd write these things on our heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.